from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. The House of Delegates passed a bill today known as the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It calls on doctors to use reasonable medical judgment in the event of an unsuccessful abortion. And it passed with bipartisan support. But some Democrats, even those who voted for the bill, argued that the measure accomplishes nothing and is an attempt at further political divides. Dave Mistich reports. In the lead up to Wednesday's vote, various groups supporting abortion rights and their lobbyists sent a letter to lawmakers urging them to vote against the bill. But each group's position was much more nuanced than that. West Virginia Free and the state chapter of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists said they would appreciate no votes, but completely understand those who supported the bill. The ACLU of West Virginia took a similar position, saying they opposed the bill but wouldn't target those who voted for it in the upcoming election cycle. But Planned Parenthood Vote South Atlantic explicitly said they would encourage opposition to the bill and will be informing supporters of lawmakers' votes. As debate on House Bill 4007 carried on Wednesday, a mix of those sentiments informed Democrats' floor speeches. Delegate John Doyle, a Democrat from Jefferson County, began discussion on the measure. This bill does absolutely nothing. It proposes to make illegal something that is already illegal. Uh, a friend of mine, I haven't seen him in a number of years, his name is Leon Copeland. He served in this house back in the late 70s. And Delegate Copeland came up with what he called the Copeland Rule to apply to a bill. That is a bill that does absolutely nothing for anyone and absolutely nothing to anyone. The Copeland Rule applies to this bill. So I think it makes absolutely no difference how I vote or how anyone else votes on this bill. It shouldn't be here because it does nothing. Republicans such as Tom Fast of Fayette County argued that the measure was necessary to protect life. He painted the picture of a situation a doctor might face should a fetus be delivered alive following an unsuccessful abortion procedure. When you have a live baby that was just born, regardless of what the intent was moments prior, but when you have that live baby laying on the table, what you don't do is have a doctor say, well, we'll just have a discussion with the mother and see what to do. That's what you don't do. You help that child. You work with that child. You give that child medical care, just like if it were myself, you, your daughter, your son laying on that table, you give that child, that person, due medical care. That's what this bill does. It is important. 
Delegate Evan Hansen, a Democrat from Monongalia County, read veto messages from governors in Montana, North Carolina, and Wisconsin related to similar measures. He noted that the head of WVU Medicine's OBGYN department says the chance of this bill affecting West Virginians is, quote, extremely small. Hansen also argued that other issues should take priority this early in the legislative session. Yesterday, I attended the Hunger Caucus meeting. People from both parties were there. And we learned that one in five kids in West Virginia, kids that were actually born alive, are hungry. But we're not addressing that in the first week of the session. And we know that we have 7,000 kids across the state of West Virginia that were actually born alive that are in need of foster care. And we're not addressing that in the first week of the session. Those are real crises that we should be voting on. My constituents sent me to Charleston to solve real problems and not to vote for a bill that does nothing but divide us. So I'm not playing this political game. I'm going to vote no. Other Democrats, like Mike Pushkin of Kanawha County, also focused on the divisive nature of the issue, but in the end, voted in support of the bill. It is, it's ridiculous, and, and it's sick to use this as a political tool. Okay, I think that the goal of this bill is to get a few of us to vote against it so you can run these ads. Personally, I don't think it changes the standard of care. So I'm pro-choice. I think I'll still be pro-choice after I don't fall into your trap. Democratic Delegate Sammy Brown of Jefferson County questioned House Health and Human Resources Chairman Jordan Hill about the science behind the underlying issue. She pointed out that the only abortion provider in West Virginia self-imposes a ban on the procedure after 16 weeks of gestation. State law prohibits the procedure after 20 weeks. Brown noted that a fetus is unable to survive at such an early stage. She wrapped up her comments on the bill by arguing that it's a political maneuver. I'm all for policy that will protect mothers, that will protect infants, that will protect life, but this simply isn't it. It is my charge and yours to protect individuals within your respective communities, not disenfranchise them, and not play to a rhetoric that is intended to divide us all. Assistant Majority Leader Delegate Kayla Kessinger of Fayette County closed debate on the measure by offering a gruesome story about an abortion provider in another state. She argued his practice highlights the need for House Bill 4007. Not too long ago, a few years ago, Kermit Gosnell in our neighboring state of Pennsylvania was fined and, and found guilty of murdering babies after birth. He literally slit, snipped their spinal cords, left them on a table, and literally put the heads of those babies in the refrigerator where his, where his staff kept their lunch. There are plenty of documentaries about it. You can look at it. And my goal in West Virginia is to make sure that doesn't happen. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act passed on a 93-5 vote, with all opposing votes coming from Democrats. Four of those five votes against the bill came from delegates representing the 51st District, which covers most of Monongalia County. House Bill 4007 now heads to the Senate for consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Dave Mistich. Lawmakers have begun the long process of examining the governor's proposed fiscal year 2021 general revenue budget. Earlier today, I spoke with House Finance Vice Chair Vernon Chris 
and Minority Chair Mick Bates about the work ahead. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Let's first talk about our current fiscal year before we move on to, to 2021. We began the, well, we began 2020, 33 million in the red. Um, from information that you may have right now, how are we doing halfway, uh, halfway through uh, January in terms of our uh, revenue collections? Right now, um, the, the deficit that we experienced in collections back in July and August uh, seemed to be the only time we, that we've seen uh, that problem. So the, the months proceeding from that time period seem to be all in line or pretty close. We seem to still have an increase in sales tax and uh, state income tax uh, collections. Okay, uh, let me just pause and, and ask you the, the main revenue streams for our general, uh, general, our general revenue. Yeah, consumer sales tax, state income tax, severance tax, uh, corporate income tax are the, basically the top four on that side. And then obviously we have a separate fund for the road fund it mm -hmm. seems to be doing their collections, which is basically motor fuel tax, uh, sales, uh, privilege tax for automobile sales, and renewal of licenses. And so there's no concern right now or little concern about how we're going to end this fiscal year? I don't think so. I think we're going to be able to close that last year adequately. I mean, there will be a, a deficit, but again, we didn't spend all the money. We didn't allocate all the money. There was right. unappropriated money that, that wasn't allocated through the budget process at the end of last fiscal year. So a combination of that, uh, I understand that the secretary, uh, sorry, the, the treasurer has allocated some additional funds through his uh, unclaimed property. Uh, there's mm -hmm. $20 million there. So um, there are various op uh, opportunities. There's some additional money in, in, in lottery and excess lottery. So I don't think there's going to be difficulty closing no, uh, the, no. the 2020 budget. Budget. I, I, I would think that the, um, the, the deficit may grow a little bit, but, uh, but I certainly don't see it growing uh, in excess of $100 million. And if we keep it below that, I, th I think the over and under is probably around 50 uh, at this point uh, for the end of the year. Okay, well, let, let's shift and look at the, the governor's proposed uh, 2021 uh, fiscal year budget. It uh, is at $4.585 billion with uh, an estimated gap of $108 million. Uh, what the governor is, is doing is going into uh, what we call the, the Medicaid surplus funds, Delegate Chris. Um, this has been done before. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it has been done before, but but probably not to the extent that, that yeah. we're looking at now. The the, the deficit, um, the, the I'm sorry, the surplus we have in Medicaid is about 309 million dollars, which is which is a large sum of money. He's taking about half of that, uh, and and is proposing to put it into sort of a, a lock box for for uh, similar for, to what we did for PEIA. Yeah, and then taking the rest of that to reallocate it through the budget process to close the hole. Um, there is a reduction of about 178 million dollars for the one-time expenditures as well. We got the budget about a week ago. In fact, it was Wednesday of last week. Thursday morning was the first time we've seen it. So um, and we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. We've had various agencies exactly. before us, we've had a budget office up there, um, and, and um, it, it's, it's a little, quite frankly, a little chaotic. Well, uh, let's just let's just look at those um, uh, highlights. We have a graphic of what the the um, governor and the tax and tax and revenue secretary uh, supplied uh, the press with. Um, the listing includes eliminating the uh, intellectual developmental Disab disabilities waiver. That's a 19.7 19 million appropriation. Part of that that money would be coming out of that that Medicaid fund. Medicaid fund. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, let me just uh, let me just go through this list real quick, and then we'll get back into 
to what it all means. Uh, Child Protective Services, 26.4 million. Medicaid Families First Reserve Fund, which we just spoke of, 150 million. A backpack program, 2 million. That's uh, sending some food home with, with school-aged ch school children. Food banks, 1 million. And then he also listed that there would be no PEIA premium increases. So back to that main component, the Medicaid Families First Reserve Fund. Uh, already there are questions whether that's the right thing to do with this Medicaid surplus. And, and we're, again, as, uh, as Mick had indicated, that, we're, that we've got several questions on that because we're trying to take uh, surplus money that was appropriated to HHR that's supposed to be used to match federal funding to go in to help these families. And it's so, a little over three to one match, right. so that's so significant. That is significant, and we want to make sure that not we're not violating any federal statute by doing this, but on top of that, that we want to make sure why wasn't this money used at the time that it was appropriated? So why, why are the short, do we have such a large amount of reserve here and the money should have been used at that point rather than put into a storage fund like it is now. Mm -hmm. So you, you run through that list of items and I think there's general legislative support for, for all those things. Um, that, that I think they're all good things that, that, that put the needs of West Virginians first and then uh, so I don't think, I don't think the, the governor's going to run into trouble with the legislator supporting those initiatives. I think there may be concern about st stashing this money away and how do we get to it. We've not seen the legislation yet to create the account, how it's going to be funded, what are we, what are we using that money for. Um, you can't tell me that all the health needs of West Virginia aren't currently met. Um, uh, you, if you speak to our, our hospitals, you speak to our providers, you speak to, you know, we lead the nation in, 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 in all kinds of poor health outcomes. So should we really be taking $150 million worth of health care money, which is matched to a federal level, uh, uh, and, and locking it away when there are significant health care needs that the legislature has appropriated this money for that's not been spent? So uh, I think there's going to be a lot more discussion around that. I, I think that the, the governor's budget uh, and the budget that the legislature actually passes uh, may look a little different. It may, it may be uh, funded differently and it'll be composed differently than what was introduced. Uh, uh, Delegate Bates, before uh, session even started, you predicted what you called a, a benign budget proce yes. process. Do you, do you still feel that way? I, I think we'll get there. I mean, yeah. I don't think that we're going to be getting into a, 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 I don't think legislatively we're getting into a, 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 a drop-down dead fights between the, the, the Senate and the House or, or the Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, I, I think there may be some disagreement uh, with the administration in terms of how we allocate this money. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the last word is his. He has the ability to be able to line item and veto out uh, certain items. But it's our responsibility to appropriate the money. Um, and I think that the, the, what he's given us and what we give back to him may, may look a little different in terms of how it's constructed. Uh, constructed. Uh, I think these initiatives um, may very well make it across the line, uh, but, but they may be funded in a different mechanism uh, because of all the other moving pieces that we have. So um, uh, I think that's the issue. The issue really that, that I think is going to be challenging is in the out years. I think this next budget will be able to get together, uh, but, but the out years is, is what's concerning. Delegate Chris, the, the out years um, uh, on this uh, particular proposal of the governor's, no PEI premium increases again this year. Um, that certainly doesn't uh, address future problems. No, and, At some and, and, point, there will be a need to either cut services or, or raise and, money, and yeah, raise, raise premiums. premiums. I mean, you have to realize, too, that, that uh, in the real world, in the private world, that, that premiums continue to go up. 
um, someplace in the, less than 10%. As far as in our family business, we've seen the increases come as of the first of the year. So yes, the, there will be there will eventually have to be increases on PEIA. When that happens, we're not sure because we don't know with the rainy day fund that we established last year for them how they will use that and how much of that will be used to take care of current needs in this year. So they have that accessibility to do that. So we'll just have to wait and see how things progress through the through this next year's budget but I agree with Mick our out years are can be concerning because obviously we still are a energy state and we don't we depend a lot upon our severance tax which is dramatically down right now because of the market conditions of both oil and our gas so we'll just have to wait and see well, let me ask you about uh, a priority of uh, the majority party, Delegate Chris, the repeal of the personal property tax on inventory and equipment. That's been estimated for manufacturing. For, for manufacturing. Right. Now, that's been estimated as uh, in somewhere of the, the uh, neighborhood of $100 million a year, and we know that that money goes back into um, to the counties, right. to our school districts. How... Uh, you'd, it's been it's been called a job killer. I'll let you I'll let you speak well, to that. The the way that we hope to uh, first of all it will be a concurrent resolution for both the House and the Senate to come together and, and put that before the people if we have a major a supermajority vote in the in both bodies. Uh, second of all, the way that it's to be structured is so that no one gets hurt at the county level. As, as we decrease the amount of tax that, that it, we fill that, back, we backfill that through either general revenue funds or through the growth in, in the uh, economy where these businesses uh, have allowed us or they will, we will allow them to introduce machinery and equipment and inventory to grow their businesses and, and, and increase their employment. And that's the idea behind it. Well, uh, so Delegate Bates, that, are you that, confident in that? Um, you know, I think uh, under, uh, for some time and, and, and under Democratic and Republican uh, administrations, we've identified that this is, um, this is a tax that, that does disincentivize capital investment uh, in West Virginia and manufacturing. And uh, it's been looked at and studied uh, extensively through the years. The difficulty is where, where, where do we backfill it from? So, um, you know, th this money does go back in the counties, it supports education, it supports uh, schools, uh, and the proposals that I've seen uh, has that money coming out of general re revenue through natural growth in the economy at the rate of about $20 million a year. And when I look at the current six-year financial plan, we're upside down, $170 million, $150 million, $160 million. Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily uh, describe it as a job killer, but this is a, a, a job uh, creator that it's been sold as. So there's some skepticism on our side about uh, how we go about this process, and until someone can show uh, me and some others, um, you know, how we can make up for this revenue in a way that's predictable, uh, that doesn't put excessive stress uh, back on the counties, then, then I think that proposal has some challenges. Uh, now, I'm very open to look at it. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in seeing if we can do something about it, uh, but whether in the context of this 60-day session we can come up with something that we can get a supermajority to, uh, it will require uh, democratic support to get it uh, across the line, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, All right, De Delegate Chris, I'm going to give you the, the last word this evening. Well, thank you. Uh, I think things, as far as the, uh, the original budget that has been presented, it'll be a, basically a flat budget. 
what what people are expecting is that we don't go out and spend more money than we have, that we think will be brought in, and and we'll be pretty well that way as we stand right now. All right, Delegate Vernon Chris, Vice Chair of the House Finance Committee, and Delegate Mick Bates, Minority Chair, also of the House Finance Committee. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. It was Tourism Day at the Capitol with several activities. Randy Yowie reports tourism's growing significance in economic development is certainly recognized. Mountain State studies show the tourism industry has grown by about 10% in the past two years. Economic development leaders like House Speaker Roger Hanshaw say major tourism growth means thinking bigger. Hanshaw says when Silicon Valley companies in California, for example, decide to branch out around the country, the number one city they're going to is Boulder, Colorado. The employees and managers say the number one reason is outdoor recreational activities. The outdoor recreation, the casinos, the hikes, just the beauty. Um, people are getting out of the, the city, out of D.C., New York City, uh, coming up for the day. River rafting promoter Tyler Tumalo never knew about the wealth of eastern panhandle activities before he moved there. Tyler now believes that more tourism awareness and marketing efforts will help community economies grow statewide. So whatever we can do, if that's digital marketing, flyers, ads, um, just having maybe like a spokesperson that's out there from the state, uh, you know, there's a few country singers, professional athletes. Growing agritourism continues to be a Department of Agriculture targeted priority. The upcoming Mountain State Maple Day celebrations offer locals and tourists alike some sweet leisure time at West Virginia's many maple syrup farms. What Maple Days does is open those sugar shacks and maple houses to the public so the public can go in and oftentimes see a tree tapping demonstration. They can a lot of times taste delicious, delicious food made with maple products. Mountain State tourism destinations run the gamut how to get the biggest bang for limited tourism bucks, along with enhancing transportation, increasing broadband, and incentivizing recreation and entertainment industries, that's the legislative challenge to tourism-based economic development. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Joining me now for some quick updates is reporter Emily Allen. Emily, thank you for being here. Back in the House, House Bill 4004 passed. Again, that creates the West Virginia Sentencing Commission. We talked a little bit about it last night. What can you tell us tonight? It's a subcommittee and they would use, um, you know, they would research uh, ways to reduce or maybe alter uh, criminal sentencing lengths. Um, the criminal justice reform has been a, a pretty big issue. Um, or it should be a big issue in the upcoming legislative session, especially during the Judiciary Committee. We're about to hear from um, that House Judiciary Committee Chair, John Schott. Um, but especially during interims, a lot of what they talked about had to deal with criminal justice reform. Um, here's Schott now. Mr. Speaker, Sorry. among the many challenges of uh, facing our state, our, the, re the uh, reform of our criminal justice system is one of the least publicized. For about, to keep, keep this in context, we have uh, a criminal justice system in which we are anywhere from 20 to 25 percent over capacity in our prisons. Our regional jails are overflowing, not only with those that are there for pretrial detention, but also uh, those who have already been sentenced to the penitentiary, but the penitentiaries are over capacity and can't retain those. Now, Emily, uh, Chairman Schott is not running for re-election, and he says this is his last 
big push what he wants to leave behind as a, as a legacy, these kinds of reforms. Mm -hmm. And it's not anything that has just popped up with this legislative session during interims, you know, even a couple days before the session started uh, during January interims. Criminal justice reform was a, a large topic. I think in that day we had two hearings um, about parole reform, um, getting people out of prisons and jails faster into the, the workforce um, and civil asset forfeiture reform. So this is just, you know, fits in line with what he was saying. Also in the House today, some impassioned remarks by uh, Delegate Danielle Walker of Monongalia County. Tell us what that was about. Yeah, so uh, we had just, we did just hear this piece from reporter Dave Mistich on the Born Alive Again bill. Um, and she, after the vote actually, um, made some remarks that were pretty in line with what we heard Democrats had to say. Um, it mostly just regarding, you know, why is this an issue that's coming up now when we have so many other issues uh, like fairness and uh, the foster care crisis coming up. Okay, let's take a quick listen. I am a proud black woman serving in this house, even though I'm not even respected when I walk through the doors. I am a proud black woman being a citizen of West Virginia, even though my year-round tan is not even respected among my colleagues in this same house. I am a proud black woman who supports all religions. But yet and still, when we get certain people of faith to come say a prayer, we disrespect them by taking a stand, by taking a seat, and I, I call that disrespect. So it may be the big takeaway from that. I mean, her whole remarks were like five minutes and 45 seconds, very impassioned. I, the big takeaway was that she didn't think uh, her counterparts in the House of Delegates were taking you know, her seriously, um, her Democratic colleagues seriously, or the you know, very real needs of West Virginians. So. All right, Emily Allen, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Tomorrow on the legislature today, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice joins us. Plus, we'll have the news and activities from here at the Capitol. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.